just wondering if it raised any questions. Is that the the Duanese? The Duanese has a power behind it. Has a power behind it, the Thomas? Yeah. Because I experienced something like this. Cause the the last last sitting. Yeah. I'm not doing very very well. I try probably drop back to a three or four stage, mm-hmm. and then I just but I discuss discuss that like. Uh, there's some kind of power in behind the thorns to draw to draw you a to sort of draw you down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. those power is different because when when you when the after you lunch mm-hmm. and you fall, mm-hmm. those kind of power is less. It's easy to to get rid of it. But when you're getting tired, those power is much stronger. Much Yes, uh, much more. <laughs> That's true. It is. Yeah. Is that power where the power come from? And where does that power come from? Yeah. Or well, I suppose it all depends on how you how you think of it. But uh, you know, uh, I have a background as a uh, training in neurophysiology, and uh, it's. There is actually a part of your brain, your brainstem, that can both stimulate and activate your brain, energize your brain through through the uh, uh, release of neurotransmitters that stimulate the brain, and a corresponding center that inhibits it and actually puts your puts your brain to sleep. And in one sense, that power comes from uh, from the, that center in your brainstem that's <laughs> putting you, you know, it, it, it has the physiological job of putting you to sleep when you, when you, you uh, your, your brain needs to rest. And it's an interesting thing physiologically, you know, that our bodies don't really seem to need to rest. It's our brains that need, need to rest. And so they have this built-in mechanism that ensures that that happens by putting itself to sleep and that's in one sense that's where the power comes from and <laughs> uh, in a very materialistic way of looking at it. but yes that is that that's how we experience dullness it's this very very powerful force that just pulls us down into into that uh, torpor state. But the most interesting thing is that, uh, except when the dullness is arriving, ar- arising out of uh, a genuine fatigue, then it's uh, it's it is reversible, and you can actually train your mind not to enter into that state under most circumstances. So, Sean. <coughs> And you train us to change our focus uh, on different parts of our body. Mm-hmm. I've got an idea, insight that mm, uh, there is no substantial experience outside there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that to turn around the object, it, it turned out to be a different 
uh, appearance. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean that uh, when you are facing an object, you always change your concentration, change your focus, it turns out to be a different experience. Mm. It turns out to be a different image in your, mm -hmm. in your mind. Mm -hmm. So it's very, it changed my uh, idea a lot. We actually had this conversation in Chinese earlier, and so uh -huh. if I may chime in to yes, clarify that at some too. point. Yeah. Uh, I think what Sean is trying to get at is that previously he has always assumed that there is this objective reality out there waiting to be discovered, mm -hmm. and that our various attempts at concentrating or contemplating on this reality will generate various facets of the same objective mm -hmm. ultimate reality. and then. It dawned upon him, just recently I guess, that in fact every single act of perception constitutes a kind of construction. That, that with, with a change in concentration, that invariably entails a change in the experiential content. That's a wonderful insight. Yes, I congratulate you on, on that realization. Yeah. <laughs> And when I was eating lunch, uh, uh, I uh, I didn't pay attention pay attention that the, the cab is open. Mm -hmm. So I when I raised the button, uh, the water inside spilled out. So I was very curious. Uh, Deborah told me that you you didn't have awareness at the time. <laughs> so I I was a little bit shocked. And I began to contemplate about this issue. Uh, the fact is that uh, the cab is open, but I didn't realize that it's <laughs> it's kind of it comes to be a contradiction in my belief system that as long as there is a objective uh, object outside, there is uh, should be a uh, clear understanding, just like a mirror uh, inside here, and there's object there. Uh, as long as the object outside there, the the clear uh, image of the will appear in in this mirror. But at that time, I I found that there is a contradiction uh, after I experienced this uh, this thing. And I, I am, and I um, memorized that you uh, train us to, to to change our focus in different parts of the body. And I, I realized that I, I overemphasize, uh, I over concentrate on the bottom of the, the the bottle. So that is why I neglect the fact that this, mm -hmm. even though it's the fat. Here. Yeah. So, I even it all often uh, it also reminds me of the phenomenon of sleep, and even the phenomenon of death. Mm -hmm. And and what's that? It was because you didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know anything. So, 
Can you tell me something uh, the relationship between this uh, phenomenon? Mm. Uh, I just mentioned that is uh, I didn't pay attention to the, the openness of the cap and and um, the we didn't know anything during our sleep uh, in some state of sleep in the state of death. Is there any relation between these two, this phenomenon? Mm -hmm. Just like when somebody's dead, even though even though the world is still existing, but um, we don't know, we don't, don't experience in the way that we are living. This seems to be a common point between this phenomenon. I I haven't cleared out my mind to <laughs> systemize the. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the interesting things here that, you know, you're focusing on the bottom of the bottle, and so uh, you're aware of that. That this is a well-established well in your uh, mind's projection of reality. That's well-established. It has the contents that you're interested in. But the top of the bottle wasn't in your direct conscious awareness. But what there was, was a, uh, an existing assumption in your mind that there was a cap that was on there. It wasn't, the, the, the top of the bottle with a cap in place was not actually in your conscious awareness. But there was a more subtle assumption that 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 was there. And the interesting thing here that you described, because you, preceding that, you're talking about realizing that all of our experiences are constructs, and indeed they absolutely are constructs. But what happened is you lifted the bottle and you had an unexpected experience. Okay. And so one of the things that we struggle to reconcile is that we have these unexpected experiences uh, that uh, at the same time we're discovering that, that the content of all of our experience is actually being generated in our mind. So there's this seeming split there. Uh, that, that we need to find some way to account for and you're sort of referring to the same thing. Uh, when you're in deep sleep, you're not aware of anything. But it seems as though the world continues to be present. Because when you wake up, up there it is, just, just where I left it. Right? <laughs> and presumably the case is the same when you die, that, the, that there's a world that continues. But you see, the important thing here is that the world of your experience is, it does in fact only exist in your mind. It is entirely a construct of your mind. But that's not the same thing as saying that 
everything exists only in your mind. You somehow slipped into this place that that your mind is the only thing that really exists and everything else is just a fantasy of your mind. Because, you know, that runs into all kinds of problems. Well, does that mean that these other people only exist in my mind? They, they are constructs. Well, and if they are, why should I bother worrying about them? <laughs> what room is there for compassion in that? You know, and these, these things can be very confusing. And some people, on beginning to gain some understanding of emptiness, will attach to the idea, well, this is all a dream. I'm just dreaming this, you know, that time. Uh, and this, uh, there's a word for this, a solipsism. You know, when you, you start to come to this idea that you and your mind are the only thing that exists and nothing else has any reality. But that is not the case either. That is, you know, that is going just to another extreme. The one extreme is to believe that there's a world out there exactly the way I perceive it. As you said, my mind is a mirror that is accurately representing and a world out there that exists completely from its own side, independently, you know. And of course, therefore, that leads us into struggling with that world so that this self that exists independently has its needs met. But to go to the other extreme, that this is, this is all in my mind. This is all a dream. Or to say that everything I experience is my karma. You know, the drink sloshing out of your bottle because there was no cap. That's your karma. I must have done something in the past that made that happen. These are extremes of going another way that are, are, are just as equally uh, uh, far from being the truth and uh, at, at least, uh, if not more so, uh, uh, as, as dangerous and misguided as our ordinary belief that there is a substantial concrete reality out there. Um, so really what is the case? Well, in our normal waking consciousness, we exist in a world that is a creation and projection of our mind, but it is constrained in particular ways. It, and what we could say, it, it's a way that it differs from an actual dream, is uh, to say that our waking reality, the, the persistent one, the one that we wake up to again each morning, and that seems to have this continuity throughout our life. This waking reality is constrained by sensory events. You know, you can jump out of a window in the dream and end up with no broken bones. But when you jump out of a window uh, when you're not in a dream, then you have to go through the whole experience of broken bones and going to the hospital and pain and weeks of healing and learning to walk all over again. So it is, it is not the case that when we say everything's empty, that it means that absolutely everything is reducible to just simply the, uh, the functioning of our mind. But what we're discovering is that essentially there are these sensory phenomena, and they are following rules of causality. 
And this is what scientists do, is they study the laws of causality that determine the way that uh, whatever is the cause of our sensory experience, the way that it functions. But what we come to realize through both uh, intellectual examination and even more profoundly through meditation practice is the, the reality that we live in and the way we experience it and what we experience is a projection of our mind. And this is true at any level that you examine it, but there is a level at which it is extremely relevant and important, and there's a level at which it is not particularly relevant. So I'll point out the two of those. If we take a stone, and you and I both We'll examine the stone and we will, we pick it up in our hand and we experience it has weight, it has some coarse texture, it has hardness, it has particular qualities. And we could take our stone together and we could walk into the office of a physicist and say, I have this solid, heavy stone here. And he would say, well, actually, that is almost purely empty space. And... Uh, the, its solidity that you experience is an illusion. Even your hand that encounters it is almost entirely empty space. That in our researches that, that we found that how can we actually describe what it is? Well, at first we thought that there was there, that there was that were these minuscule uh, points of uh, existent stuff. Uh, surrounded by force fields and it was uh, with these huge spaces and that it was those force fields that surrounded them that created the illusion of its solidity and so forth. But then when we looked closer, this is the physicist talking, we looked closer, we discovered that that's not even true, that there is no material stuff with dimension that occupies space, that these points that we thought were substantial turned out to be curvatures of space and time. But space and time curvatures just create this uh, uh, this uh, seemingly points of, of stuff. And as space-time is curved, it generates this experience of weight and massiveness and impenetrability and so forth. Okay. So here at this level of the stone, we you and I both experience the stone in one way, but those who have delved more deeply into the laws of causality that lie behind our sensory experiences tell us that doesn't exist at all. That is the irrelevant part of it. The fact that, but, but it, it, it's, it's, irre, it's functionally irrelevant, but it's philosophically important because it helps us to accept the fact that at the most fundamental level, everything we experience, even the massiveness and the solidity of a stone, is a projection of our mind that has been generated from our mind in order to account for 
our sensory experience. So even at this practically irrelevant level of very common experience, we know that we, that we actually are having an illusion. If I hold this object up, you say, you see it. Now, where does the seeing occur? How does your mind? You say, oh, well, there's light rays that bouncing off of this real object, and they enter your eye. And uh, so you don't see the beater. You see the light rays. Is that the fact of the matter? Well, not actually. Because the light rays strike chemical pigments in your retina and cause them to break down. And when they break down, it causes ions to move across the cell membrane and generate an electrical potential that is propagated along a nerve fiber. So what you're really seeing is electrical impulses passing along a nerve fiber? Well, not exactly, because actually these reach a lower level center of the brain and then uh, they stimulate other nerve cells and electrical impulses spread elsewhere. And the result of all these spreading electrical impulses is the release of neurotransmitters that both create specific patterns of electrical activity in the brain, but they also uh, create localized area where there's basically a chemical bath of a certain kind of electro uh, a certain kind of neurotransmitter and somehow out of all of this stuff the brain creates a perception that corresponds to you know red and white stripes and, and shape and everything like that so does this mean that your mind is seeing neurotransmitters and, uh, uh, and electrical impulses not really even that and we don't need to perceive to, to perpetuate this particular discussion much further. But you see, the point is that there is this tremendous gap, uh, uh, this uh, gap in the nature of, uh, of what we know and how, how we know it between the things that are the sources of our sensation. So this by all kinds of indirect means is a source of a sensation of shape and color. Our, our stone was a source of a sensation of weight and resistance, and, you know, massiveness and impenetrability. But at this level, we realize that at, at this most fundamental level, we realize that the mind is shaping a world out of sensation and this is all that we will ever directly know is the sensations and, and this is the, but even for most of our life we haven't even known that all we've known is the mind's projection the mind's ideas that it has created of, of, of what things are uh, and if we exercise the greatest powers of our mind and in the deepest meditative states then we can come into contact and directly perceive the relationship between the sensations and the concepts and ideas that arise. But we can't take it that step beyond to where, where does this come from, except in the very indirect means of uh, 
what the physical sciences try to do. Now, once again, what I've described to you, this is the emptiness of things. Emptiness, is they, let, let's define it. When we say something is empty, we mean it has no substantial nature of being the way we perceive it to be. That the way we perceive it to be is entirely a construct. And so we see at the most fundamental level, the reality that we exist in is a creation of our mind which is empty of having any substantial nature of being that way. But at the level of rocks and beaters, it's highly consens consistent intersubjectively. And so we can disregard that. that. That rocks are empty is not important. But in our life experience, it's not rocks that are important. Now, this rock, I may regard it as beautiful and valuable, and you may regard it as ugly and worthless. Now we're starting to get into the level of perception where uh, it, it becomes relevant and becomes important. A person, we look at a person, and one person sees this, uh, this person as a wonderful, kind, generous uh, being that they're so fortunate to have the opportunity to be in the company of. And somebody else sees this person as a despicable, dishonest, whatever, you know, totally different perception. So this, this is emptiness at the level that really starts to make a difference. One person lives in a world that is uh, has many sources of satisfaction and gratification, and, and they feel feel fortunate. And uh, another person living in the same place in the same time is filled with dissatisfaction and unhappiness and disappointment. The, the, this is where emptiness starts to really count. Two persons can walk side by side into the situation, into a particular place, uh, a room for example, and one person's eyes will light on certain things and their ears will hear certain things. And amongst all of those different things to be experienced, the other ones, their eyes will come to light on a different set of things and their ears will pick up different things. One person will have a miserable time and the other person will have a wonderful time. This person says, oh, what a wonderful place and what a wonderful experience. And this one says, you know, uh, I, I, I'd rather be in hell. You know. This is emptiness. This is the emptiness that really counts. Now, the, the ultimate, the ultimate truth is that in terms of this definition of empty, absolutely everything at every level, whether you think this is a wonderful world or whether life itself is horrible, uh, whether you uh, agree with the, the politics of the society you live in or, or think it's an absolute disaster, uh, whether you think people are wonderful or whether you think people are basically horrible creatures, all of these different things, this is the emptiness that creates the, the, the reality of your life, the reality of the world that you live in.
So at every level, it's empty. No aspect of our experience is truly an accurate representation of some external reality the way that it absolutely is. It's always a reflection uh, of the activity of our mind. And seeing that, then the question is, how do we come then to understand, to say that, well, if this is, this is all a projection of my mind, then by gosh, my, my mind, why isn't my mind projecting things exactly the way I want them then, right? Legitimate question. If my mind's projecting it, why isn't it projecting it the way I want? And there, there is an answer. The answer is what we call karma. Your mind projects reality the way that it does as a result of all of those cumulative actions or acts, mental, verbal, and physical, that you have carried out. Because each of them has arisen out of an experience followed by an interpretation of the experience which then has triggered some kind of motivation to act. And the intention that has arisen has left an imprint. Your, how your mind interprets any situation that your mind finds itself experiencing is a result of the cumulative effect of all of these imprints. And you've been making them all along. And, and you, you know how this works. You even experienced it on a very immediate level that you get out in a, a bed in the morning and you spill your tea and so you feel annoyed and upset. And then uh, you get uh, somebody says something and you feel irritated and you get into a negative mental state. And sure enough, when you're in this negative mental state, you begin to selectively notice those things that are most ugly, annoying, and upsetting. And they, in turn, make you feel, give you various feelings of physical and mental unpleasantness, which further strengthens the mental state. And so by the end of the day, you find yourself totally miserable and everything's gone wrong and you don't like the way anything is and even something that you did like well you know somebody sees that you're in a bad mood and they want to make you feel better so here why don't you have some of your favorite such and such and such I don't want that take it away right you can't even enjoy the things that you normally enjoy or it could go completely the other way I mean you could enter into a state of joy but the reality that your mind creates is, is the result of the mental formations, the processes that take place in your mind in, in the interpretation of your experience. And it happens on the local scale of what I just described. It happens on the scale of your whole lifetime. The kind of person you are and the kind of reality that you live in and your personhood is just as much a, an empty projection as any other aspect of the world. So the kind of person you are is a mental projection that has been determined by this 
accumulation of mental formations over a lifetime of experience. And the reality that that person is experiencing is likewise an interpretation created out of the same massive collection of mental formations. And these, these mental formations, we've created them. Every single experience we have modifies these mental formations that determine the nature of the world that we live in. And every every intention that we respond to that experience with further modifies it. You see? This has uh, the most important ramification of this is since your mind is creating your re- is, is creating your reality and is also creating the person you are on the basis of these imprints that you have been mindlessly creating it means that if you can mindfully change the nature of of the uh, kinds of formations that you generate you can completely change the reality that you live in and you can completely change the kind of person that is experiencing that reality. But in order to do this, we turn the focus inward. We no longer, it it may remain mysterious exactly what there is out there that is the source of our sensory experience but we accept that it's following its own laws and rules. Now, the Buddha himself, when asked about causality, identified uh, five different levels of causality. Now, some more recent thought that has developed in Buddhism, particularly in certain Mahayana, Vajrayana schools, has reduced absolutely everything to a single form of causality that they have labeled karma. But that's extremely problematic in many ways. I, I myself go back to the Buddha's description of causality. He said there is physical causality. In other words, there is whatever it is that we can't really know that follows its own laws of causality, which physicists and chemists and people like that are able to study. And we may not really know it, we may have no direct experience of it, only the indirect experience that comes through our senses, but the Buddha accepted it. There is this level of causality. And he also accepted that there is a next level of causality that emerges from that which is the biological, and indeed also those that study the physical level of causality have found this as well, that where does life come from? Life came from non-living matter, it evolved out of it, and there is the biological reality that matter, following its own causal laws, has organized itself into living organisms, single-celled organism, and then more complex organisms, plants and animals and termite communities and human societies and and human beings with all of our elaborate complexity and our amazing capacities. But we are, and 
to understand the world, there is uh, a whole aspect of the world that functions at the level of this biological causality. Evolution, the, the, the origin of all the different kinds of living organisms, is a, a very direct and undeniable manifestation of the operation of causality at the biological level. And then the next level is the level of mental causality. Once you have minds, you have, uh, or once you have biological organisms, when they organize to a certain level of complexity, where they have nervous system and brains, they also have minds. Flies have some kind of mind when they fly around and do their fly thing. You know, and lizards do, and birds do, and we do. We have minds. And just as biological causality is a unique and different level of causality that has emerged directly from physical causality, the level of mental causality is one that has emerged. It is unique in its own way, but it has emerged from biological causality. And our minds function according to their own laws of causality. And simple minds follow simple laws of causality. More complex minds, like, well, what do I mean by a simple mind? There are some animals with very small brains and nervous systems, and they're virtually incapable of learning anything new. When they were born or hatched out of the egg or whatever it was in their nervous system form, it was pre-wired to behave in a certain way. Quite complex. They know how to go and they know how to live in this world and to fulfill their niche. They can feed themselves. They can avoid predators. They can survive. They can find mates. They can reproduce. They can do what's necessary. But it's all pre-wired. So at that level of mental causality, to understand that, we have to understand it on its own terms. But there is a higher level than that. As minds become more complex, we have a mind that programs itself, and that's what I was talking about. We program the way our mind functions. It's not hardwired into us. Well, we've been programmed by all of our experience since we were born. We've been programmed by our parents and our teachers, and we've been programmed by the people that we've talked to and the things that we've thought and the things that we've read. We, we are a kind of mind that is self-programming. And that's the level of causality that the Buddha called karma. And the word karma means action, but he said when I say action, I mean intention. And when as meditators, as introspective meditators looking at our own minds, we discover that indeed this is really the only kind of action that we are capable of is intention. And in turn, this intention programs our minds so that the kind of reality our mind generates is a reflection of the intentions that we have. And so this is the level of, of causality that the Buddha called karma, okay? Which is not a denial of any of these other levels, but it's a recognition of yet a completely unique level of causality 
that we find and, and that determines everything about the way we are. Now, of course, the highest level of causality is the ca- level of causality that is based on insight and wisdom and understanding. Through penetration and understanding, uh, the uh, what, what's called uh, dependent origination, which is really a description of, uh, see, these levels of causality uh, interact with each other and at the wisdom level we come to understand how the karmic level works and how the karmic level determines the mental level and this is of course where our experience of our own personhood our own nature and the experience of our reality comes from and so at the highest level of causality through wisdom and understanding we gain control of the karmic process and we can alter it and through altering the karmic process we can then in turn play an intentional role from a point of wisdom and understanding rather than from mindfulness rather than mindlessness from wisdom rather than ignorance uh, we can play a role in determining the reality that we experience so you take your bottle and as a net result of everything and uh, this is another aspect of emptiness and you know I won't go into it but I'll just tell you it. the fact we perceive that A causes B and we see that B causes C and we say well why did that happen? And we point and say, well, that happened because of this. This is also empty. This is an illusion. And the simple answer, I won't go into it, but the simple answer is that everything is the cause of anything. When you ask the question, what is the cause of that? That is the result of everything. Okay? And it is likewise a partial cause of everything else. Everything is totally interconnected. Everything is the cause of everything, ultimately. (laughs) So that's another aspect of of the emptiness of things. But when we come to the place, uh, I'm not sure exactly how I got to that. You see, my (laughs) mind got a little very, I'm not sure why that little... uh, uh, side road came in there. Can you remind me? <laughs> no, I was going to. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Um, given what you said, uh, we could even argue that the saying that all we have access to is sensation mm-hmm. is itself a provisional saying, in that sensations could be one step closer to what constitutes the immediacy of present moment mm-hmm. in contrast to conceptualization, in contrast to nama. Yes. But the, the boundaries that mark off the beginning and ending of sensations and the, the, the hedonic properties and the lakshana characteristics that make these sensations distinct and recognizable, they mm-hmm. are themselves constructs too. In, in fact, in closer examination, Mm-hmm. even sensations seem to fall off and all that you have left with is just this empty suchness. 
Yes, that is that's absolutely true, and that's that's an important thing to recognize and un- understand. That, uh, and I certainly hope and encourage that you will all continue to move in the direction of wisdom through this exploration and discovery. But what you will find is, no matter how far you go, and no matter which direction you go in, you'll find the same thing. The answer is always the same. This too is empty. This too is empty. So, what uh, William is saying about the sensation, about sensation, uh, this is, you've made a huge step forward in coming out of the illusion that we live in when you just simply recognize that that uh, your sensation is the raw material uh, out of which the, your mind creates reality or another way you could look at it is it's almost like sensation is the screen on which your mind projects the images of what it thinks the world is you know, however you want to look at it but if you look at that more closely you find that that too is empty uh, I mean just in, in an obvious way that that you know okay I see things by virtue of my eye and it's interpreted by my brain but there is no eye that too is a projection of the mind that too is a fabrication just to account for the sensations that I have say so, okay well at least okay sir there's no eye so my mind made up my eye and my brain just to explain how this but there's still color and shape right Hmm. Color and shape. <laughs> when you look, in, you'll find they're empty too. When you examine them, you'll discover that they're just as empty as, as absolutely everything else. And uh, it's emptiness all the way down. I wish I knew for sure that everybody knew it. It's turtles all the way down. Is anybody know that? <laughs> It's emptiness all the way down. You mentioned yes. there's five levels uh, of causality according to Buddha, mm-hmm. but you have said only four. What is the fifth? The fifth is the. The fifth is actually the level of of wisdom and insight. Okay, but the first is physical, the second is biological, the third is mental, which is karma. Mm-hmm. So what's the fourth missing one? Oh, oh, physical, biological, mental, karma, and the fifth oh, is wisdom and insight. Yeah, karma. Karma is it represents its own level. Uh, once the karma is present, your mind is going to operate according to its own rules, and that that generates the reality in the moment. But then your your experience and the intention that arises out of that, then that's the karmic level of intentionality, which in turn is going to determine your future. It's going to determine the way your mind functions in its next set of experiences. So, According to that, how do you explain that, you know, people who does bad things goes to hell uh, because then that's only the karma's interpretation of the world. If there's no hell, then... Yeah. Yes, hell, hell is empty. It's hell is a projection of your mind. And that's perhaps one of the most uh, difficult things to grasp uh, initially, because when it comes to pain and suffering, uh, 
more than anything else, then it, it seems like uh, it is dependent upon circumstances. But, uh, and as a matter of fact, until you succeed in achieving awakening and obliterating the ignorance that makes that indisputably so, that will be the case. But once you've achieved awakening, then hell can no longer be uh, generated through circumstances, and, and it will no longer be generated by the mind. I guess one way of explaining this is that uh, the habitual tendencies that we reinforce and engage in, some of those type of habitual tendencies will lead to behavior patterns that would in turn lead to yes. afflictions and, and mental torment right. and so forth. And awakening is a, is a condition in which such an engagement in those type of habitual tendencies is no longer possible. And as a result of that, whatever physical circumstances you find yourself in, they will not amount to a level of suffering that is customarily referred to as hellish suffering. That's right, yeah. Right. Uh, but that brings up something, just to point, maybe this is going to be, everything is a cause of everything. So when we talk about these levels of causality, they are abstractions, okay? So, at the level, at, at, at one level, when we talk about the fruits of your karma, you know, and we can say absolutely everything you experience is the result of your karma, and that's a true statement. But what we're saying is the way that you experience it, because somebody else could have exactly the same experience but not experience it in the same way that you did. Exactly the same circumstances could unfold in exactly the same way, but they experience it differently. So this is what we mean when we say that every experience that you have is the result of your karma, because it is your karma that has determined how your mind is, the, the reality that your mind is going to generate out of the immediate circumstances. But all of these other levels, they're not, they're not cut off from each other with a, you know, with a nice solid barrier that separates them. They are all totally interconnected because it was your past, it, it, it's your cumulative mental formations, your tendencies, your past intentions, the degree to which you have uh, conditioned yourself to respond to uh, certain kinds of things through desire and aversion that caused you to be in that particular place at that particular time. You see, that, that is a, the, the fact that you happen to be there is a consequence. It's the result of decisions you made. And uh, whatever other circumstances may be attendant upon the circumstances, uh, uh, not just where you are, but any of the other things. I mean, without without trying to generate some concrete example. Okay, uh, a, a concrete example. So you're, you're, you're driving down the street and somebody runs into the back of your car. Okay. How you, you know, one person, this is absolutely 
terrible. Is my insurance is going to go up. I'm going to late for my appointment. I have to go take the car in. It'll be. They won't get it back to me for three or four days. And you know, all they see is just how horrible this is. And somebody else takes it really, really smoothly. You know, like oh, okay. <laughs> Their first concern was was the person that ran into them. Are they all right? You know, or did they did they get hurt? They're okay. Okay. Well, thank goodness you're all right. And then it's just a, you know, there's just the things you do to take care of the problem. The experience, the way you experience this incident is a result of your karma, your mental formations, your past, uh, how you have conditioned yourself to respond. But it's not just that. Why did you happen to be in that particular place at that particular time? And what led you to do whatever you did that contributed to the other person running into the back of your car. There were a lot of decisions that led up to this, uh, some that you might be able to track down, but thousands and thousands of others that you'd never be able to, to ferret out and identify individually. But they all added up to this situation. They all added up to you being in this place at this time and doing whatever you did or not doing whatever you didn't do. And if we look at them, we'll find that they're all, in some way or another, uh, an, an evolution out of, you know, uh, desire and aversion and ignorance. There, uh, you know, but there's very, very many of them. Everything is the cause of everything. So this particular situation has a myriad of causes that cannot be traced, and that is actually why, you know, in uh, as I say, in, in some Mahayana and Vajrayana schools, they want to insist that absolutely everything that happens to you is your is a result of your karma. Because they will, for example, looking at emptiness as we have now, say, well, why do we even need to posit the existence of an external world? We experience sensations in our dreams. We know that our mind can create sensory experiences. So let's just drop the idea of a world. Mind only, that's all we need. That accounts for everything. That's enough right there. Let's not, let's not drag in something that we won't ever really be able to know directly anyway. Okay, so, all right. Well, if there were an external world, then we could account for why things happen to us in a particular way. But if there's not one, well, it just means that there's some invisible functioning of the mind that generates the sensations we have. I mean, after all, in a dream, why do you see the things that you see in a dream? Well, you don't know. You just see them. It's really no different than you look out your window and why do you see the things that you see? They're just there, right? We've just, and there's really no difference. We've just shifted it from uh, saying that, well, there's a material world that accounts for that aspect of things to, okay, there is a, a, an aspect of, of, of the mental world, we'll call, it, we'll call it the karmic aspect that accounts for everything, and it too follows its own laws. Right? From, from a philosophical point of view, they are equivalent explanations, you know, and it doesn't really matter. But the other thing that allows people to adopt this view and say, absolutely every single aspect of every single thing that happens to you is karma is the realization that everything is totally interconnected and everything is the cause of everything. Well, everything, if everything is the cause of everything, and especially if you accept the doctrine that we have lived 
some uncountable number of lifetimes before, throughout all of which we've been accumulating karma of all kinds, that goes into this mental repository of, of karma, this alaya of the vijnana, that is the repository of countless lifetimes uh, of karmic uh, <coughs> karmic actions, then that accounts for everything, you know. So an asteroid comes through hundreds of millions of light years of space and happens to land on your foot, it's your karma. <laughs> Somehow or another, out of all of your countless lifetimes, all those actions added up to your alaya vijnana, you, the, the, the part of your, of your mind that stores, stores all this karmic stuff, uh, you know, uh, that popped out of it and hit your foot, and that's the way it is. So. Is that the you that's the fact? Is that what? I mean, you know, a comic lies at your foot, you got burned to death like you were experiencing hell. <laughs> is, that, is that part of karma or not? I mean, I don't know whether you're telling a joke or you... you, you no, uh, I, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying that... Uh, and and I'll, let, I'll let you... I'm just saying that there's a certain level... You know, we can't say which one of these is true. One of them was described by the Buddha that causality has. It. Buddha was quite willing to accept that you know there's, that there there is something outside of the mind. And the much later interpretations of Buddhism were quite willing to say, well, we don't need to. And what I'm saying to you is that we can't really choose between those. It's all empty. Both of both of them are fabrications of the mind. So it doesn't really, really matter. It's not that one or the other is true. Here, here, here's the, the argument that although there are other causalities, mm -hmm. but like in physical causalities, you know, there are random factors. Mm -hmm. Physical causality cannot determine everything. Yeah. And so can't biolo biological causality. So there are other random factors which science cannot explain, which then the karma could play a role. So everything could still be the result of karma, at the same time accommodates mm -hmm. all other causalities. Yes, right. Yeah, and, and 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 that's the basis for saying that you could interpret this any of these different ways. Yeah, I, I speak this with some affinity with uh, Chinese Buddhist mentality. When 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 people say that, they oftentimes uh, come from a presumption that even the physical laws, even physical and biological causalities. They are caused by karma. And mm -hmm. by the way, in this case, karma is understood mm -hmm. not as this habitual tendency, this, this conditioning effect generated by intention, but rather it is, understand, it is understood as this kind of cosmic retribution mechanism. You do good, you reap a certain type of result in a kind of a poetic justice way. Mm -hmm. You kill a chicken in your next life, you get reborn as a chicken, you get, get killed. You, yeah. you, you killed. Something to that effect. And uh, in the Pali commentaries, uh, there is also a list of five causalities. It's somewhat comparable mm -hmm. to the one that you cited, but it's mm -hmm. distinct in that the Buddha identified the fifth causality as chance, as mm -hmm. probability, as, chance. Mm -hmm. as ac mm -hmm. accidents. And mm -hmm. this is traditionally understood to be this cumulative impact generated by all these mm -hmm. discernible, undiscernible. Uh, forces that we that we talked about, mm -hmm. and um, I think this is especially pertinent 
uh, discussion to Chinese Buddhists mm -hmm. because they have this tendency of believing that all life circumstances are results of this type of retributive uh, karma while failing to see that the Buddha in fact identified this belief to be a form of wrong view, yes. to be a form of determinism. Mm -hmm. Because if there's, this were true, then the circumstance in which I find myself being hit by a drunk driver, mm -hmm. the drunk, drunk driver uh, could be uh, uh, free of any guilt in mm -hmm. that the drunk driver was merely compelled by my back karma Mm -hmm. to become drunk on the day, and as a result right. of that, yeah. hit me. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, and if I get angry and shoot somebody, well, it was their karma to get shot, so it's really their fault I got angry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that type of Chinese Buddhist belief yeah. and, and karma has more to do with Jainism than yeah. with Buddhism, at least with yeah. early Buddhism. Well, the, what I would really like to make clear, and, 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 and to satisfy your query here too, is that, you see, all views are views, you know, and so a view such as the view that everything is karma is a view, and as such, it is nothing more, it's something else that's generated by the mind, and it's just as empty as everything else that's generated by mind, the mind. And, and the view that describes reality in terms of different levels of causality is it's also it's a product of the mind. It's, part, it's the same thing. Uh, all emptiness is the attempt of the mind to uh, make an accounting for things in one way or another. And these things can be more or less satisfying and more or less useful. But no view represents truth. There is no, all views are empty. Absolutely there is no view that represents truth in an absolute sense. And what that means, embedded within that recognition, is every view has its dangers. And we've just been talking about an example, you know, the kind of view that says everything is the result of my karma can have its very positive effects on my behavior. It can cause me to have a really strong sense of responsibility for every action that I take. Or it can be interpreted in another way that le actually leads me to just the opposite, to, to very little regard for my fellow beings. When you take some of these views, when you take the view that uh, Everything is a projection of my mind, so even the people that I encounter are a projection of my mind. And combine that with the view that everything is karma, then you, you really run the risk of running, of, of becoming a very kind of self-centered person who can easily justify all kinds of things, you know. So views are dangerous things. Views are, are very, very dangerous things. The other thing is that the most ubiquitous and the most dangerous of all views is the view that uh, we are this separate self. You see? And this, this is really the one that leads to the problems in all of these other views. So, if 
I'm born into these miserable circumstances of extreme poverty surrounded by uh, disease and, and, and warfare and abusive parents. And I say to them, why me? Is this my karma? But who is this I that says this? Does this mean that if, if you'd been born into these circumstances instead of me, it would be different? Or, or if you had, it would be different, would it? Wouldn't. It would be exactly... There is, in, in that sense, there's no difference between you and I. There's no me that had the misfortune of being born into these circumstances that is different from the you that could have been born into them instead. But if you had done something different in the past, you know, it's irreplaceable. I mean, the reason that you are born in that, in that circumstances is because of your karma. But since somebody else didn't have the same circumstances, you would never be born into that same circumstances. Because but if you view... If, if those circumstances exist, somebody gets born into them. Buddha said that if you think that the person who did that and the person who reaped the fruit is the same person, that's called personality. Yeah. And if, no, okay. What, what I'm saying is that the person, the reincarnation, is not a person itself. Right. The reincarnation or the I that has been continuing is a set of images like Udi. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. Right now I'm here and I see you, right. you are part of my movie, right. part of my karma. And this, as well as my skin, as well as your skin, is part of my karma. Mm-hmm. As long as it appears in my image. Right. And that whole thing moving along is me, the continuous moving along, where I have an identity as a self, which is supposedly this emptiness. Okay, but within this emptiness, the images continue to be played. So this emptiness, which is me, it's sort of like movie screen. Mm-hmm. And then on this movie screen, you know, we continue to have these images played. And then among <coughs> this, there's only three things. One is this movie screen, which is the self, the, the I, the, 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 the Buddha nature, the, the self. Are you equating the self with the Buddha nature? Pardon? Are you equating the self with the Buddha nature? I don't nature? mean self as this skandhas or everything. Mm-hmm. The, the self or we just call it emptiness, not using the word self. But, but you're equating the movie with the self, and what you're doing is what to no, I'm, no, no, I, I did not do that. Oh. I'm equating, I'm equating the, say, the emptiness, mm-hmm. the Buddha nature is the movie screen. Mm-hmm. What's shown on the movie screen, the movies, the images, those are what we call forms. In, in, in Zen, there are three things, ti xiang yo. It's like the body or or the emptiness. Xiang is the form. You know everything that's shown in this movie. What we we see, we experience. You know uh, the compound, all compound phenomena. These are the forms that's showing on the movie screen. Mm-hmm. And the third thing, which is critical, is the in in Zen is called Nian, or I believe it's like. Uh, the, the initiative that we can do things, you know, our, our intention. Mm-hmm. So the third thing is the intention. Intention causes karma. 
that determines what movies are played. Mm-hmm. So if this intention is if this intention is diluted, mm-hmm. then we think all of these things being played are concrete. So I mean intentions to operate. You know, this is system operates whether you are diluted or not. But if the intention is being diluted by is diluted, then you're making next intentions causing bad karmas and you continue to live in this dream, in this movie world. But if the intention is enlightened, knowing that all of these movies are just forms, they're all empty mm-hmm. of, of selves, then you'll be made able to make wise decision. And then your movie that's been played will become more pure, or more pleasurable, you know, as time progresses, when you exhaust it your past karma, because you continue to add to your past depository of all the seeds, you know, in, in the, uh, in, 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 you know, in like the eighth, eighth consciousness. So after those are exhausted, that's why the bodhisattvas, after being enlightened, they continue needs to practice and cultivate, because they still have these seeds from the past. So every time they do something, they still have the intention that intention, although it might be emptiness, sometimes they're deluded as well. They're not totally purely pure intentions, even at bodhisattva level. But so that's there's so different levels of bodhisattva. So when you reach the level of enlightenment, that really is the beginning of your practice, because now you know how to practice. You know how to have the good intention to purify your movie, but you don't necessarily always follow that rule. You know, you fall back, you know, like what you're saying, different stages, and so you fall back and forth until you reach a certain stage, like all the way up to the eighth level of the Bodhisattva. Then you have a pure mind. You know, you cleared all of that. Everything you do without any intention are just pure. And from that stage, then you reach Buddhahood. And that's, that's why, personally, why it takes like uh, one period for a person to get enlightened. But from the first level of bodhisattva to the eighth level of bodhisattva takes another same amount of time because that's where really the practice starts. Before you reach enlightenment, because people's intention, everything's diluted, there's no way you know how to make a correct purification intention because you're not enlightened. You don't know how to do that. So you continue to be enlightened. You continue to make mistakes. And that's why you will continue to to recycle, to to get to become to reborn, and that's why it takes as equal amount of time for a bodhisattva to reach the eighth level bodhisattva. And from there, it takes another same amount of time to reach Buddhahood before you can purify everything. And that's that's my concept. Yes, and you've expressed that very well. This is a once again. This is another theoretical construct. It's a set of views, and. It's it, it's actually it, it has it, it's a set of views that has a lot of merit of its own, you know, and, and obviously uh, uh, it's been very useful and helpful to you. And so this is not uh, this is not in any way a criticism either of that set of views or of you, but to point out to you that there is a thread in all of this, but it is, it's, it's very evident 
to me. It, there is still this attachment, the idea of a separate selfhood, you know, and that that is the flaw in this particular. It is very. If you take the vantage point that until you achieve awakening, you are going to continue to be afflicted with this view of selfhood. Okay, with this attachment to to the idea that there is a separate entity that I can identify as myself, other than simply the five aggregates. But there there's somehow a selfhood subtly in there. As uh, and you say to yourself, well is, until I'm awakened and I can actually be freed of that then the view that you've described is a very useful and productive one. But in an ultimate sense, it is not a reflection of ultimate truth. It is a use, functionally useful view, and not one that I'm in any way criticizing or condemning. It can be very, very useful for you. Uh, you know, But it does con- contain, embedded within it, this acceptance in a variety of subtle ways of the uh, the existence of a separate selfhood. There, there is this very famous story with the Buddhist disciple Tsuchina who identified this awareness as the self, mm-hmm. this movie that you just described. And Buddha said that even this cannot be taken as the self. Because to think that this movie screen is continuous and therefore representing one enduring entity that is still one form of self-view. And so it's not just enough to see that the contents of the movie are constructs, but you have to see that the screen itself is, is, is a construct, too. It, it, it's actually a view held by quite a few of the Buddha's disciples, where the Buddha systematically explained that that is really not well, at, at least that would be a useful transitional model, perhaps, for some yeah. people. Right. But, but thank you for articulating that very clearly, you know. And, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, one of the biggest puzzles in Buddhism, if you don't have this, even this emptiness, this screen is no self, you know. This, but this screen is coming to everybody. That's why when people get enlightened, they get to a stage where the experience is the same. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, to me, is a demonstration that something, substance, some certain kind of things does exist there, and not everything is totally uh, dreaming. So there's some, something of substance there. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, this question being asked many Many, many times over the thousand years the Buddha ever, you know, ever existed is that if everything's empty, who is practicing? Mm-hmm. If I'm empty, you know, I don't even have a screen, what am I? What am I doing here? What, what am I practicing? And uh, if, the, if, if nothing exists, if we don't have this Buddha nature, what well, we can eventually get to, then what is Buddha? When Buddha becomes Buddha, is, is, he, is he becoming uh, like a machine? Because machine doesn't have a self. So, and then he, machine doesn't make any judgment. 
machine is forever happy because he doesn't have any sadness. <laughs> so we might as well become a machine. So we all become robots, like in the Star Wars. And if that's the goal of our practice, I mean, that's what this seems to be suggesting. If people denies that there is actually a Buddha nature where we can get to, and this Buddha nature is empty. It's, I, I he says it's emptiness. I don't think that the teacher is denying Buddha nature. It's just saying no, that the wrong. Buddha nature probably cannot be identified as certain things. For and example, this perception of, of moving screen. Because the Vedantas and Buddhists historically actually engage in a lot of debate about this. The Vedantas are saying that there is this movie screen. I can prove it by saying that, see, I can remember what I have experienced in the past. And the Buddhists were saying that, well, those memories themselves are individual constructs. The memories that you have access to is not a direct evidence that you have this eternal, ever-abiding self that is always no, playing I, the, the role the, this of This self I'm referring to, this movie screen I'm referring to, is emptiness. That's what, when people are enlightened, that's what they experience, is this emptiness, which is the movie screen. It has nothing in it. It doesn't have any residual effect from the movie that has been played in the past. But it, we all have this moving screen, but we were not able to find it, we're not able to identify this is it. And that's the problem with people being deluded. But the Zen theory again, or view is that there's a way by different methods when you identify this, when you find this movie screen, and then you source through the whole world, the world becomes so simple. You have this movie screen where you can generate intentions, and this movie screen itself is empty. And so there's really the causes and effect. Is the cause the, the the cause is this movie screen, which is totally empty in nature. And then somehow this is the big mystery of what everything can do is from there you can generate in intention but once intention comes becomes a reality becomes a thought mm -hmm. that is something play on the movie screen already but from there and that's why like in the uh, uh, Wei Jing is uh, right and he's saying that you know, you know, there was a set of questions, what is this, and then this is because mm -hmm. of that, because of that. And then eventually he comes to the point where he says, oh, you go to this, and which is the source of evil as well. And so from this emptiness, you can generate, you know, uh, all the images, good or bad. So whether you are enlightened or not, that's the rule. But if you're enlightened, you'll be able to know how to generate an emptiness, an intention that is based on emptiness. And that's why, you know, in, that in the uh, Diamond Sutra, what's, uh, what's his name, uh, Kong Seng's Subhuti. Subhuti. Right. You know, the name is, his name in Pali, Pali or, or Sanskrit, Sanskrit is born from emptiness, arise from emptiness. And that's according to the way why his name is such is that because he's able to 
have his intention generated from emptiness. So, anyway, thank you for listening. Maybe we could just bring this back more to a, a level of, of practicality. Uh, it's, it's very easy to spend a lot of time in uh, intellectual and, and speculative discussion of what awakening is like and what it's like to be a Buddha. It's far better to do what's necessary to uh, know that for yourself. Uh, and a very important part of that is, is, is really coming to recognize and understand uh, emptiness. But it's, not, it, it, it's quite difficult uh, because of just how deeply ingrained in our mind are certain tendencies. Uh, and the tendency to cling, to cling to the idea of a separate self and as a matter of fact, un- until you have an experience that at least partially liberates you from that view, you're still going to become mired in confusion intellectually as you try to think through this. And the same thing's true of, of emptiness. And I just would like to clarify one thing, that emptiness, to be empty doesn't mean not to exist. It means not to exist in a particular way, you know. And so when we say everything is empty, we're not saying that that the, everything is non-existent. It's non-existent in a particular way, but we're not saying that nothing exists. I mean, that would be silly, right? To say that nothing exists would be absolutely silly. <laughs> it would be. It would be in total contradiction with the fact of your experience in the present moment. You know, it's just, non-existence is is, is a non-starter as a useful idea. But various ways of existence, and in particular, emptiness is saying existence in the form of things, thingness, is impossible. You know, very famous uh, uh, Buddhist uh, philosopher and teacher, Nagarjuna, uh, went through a lot of complex logic to demonstrate in many different ways that the existence of things is absolutely impossible. So that's what doesn't exist, is, is things. Things are something that are a reflection of the way our minds work. Our minds project things as a way of organizing reality and making it comprehensible. But what doesn't exist as a part of ultimate reality is is thingness in any form. (laughs) So, but when we understand that you know, it, it's not important whether a rock as a thing exists or not so much as when we start to realize that the reality that we're experiencing on the complex levels uh, that we experience as a human being is a projection of our mind and is something 
that we absolutely have the power to change. And it's not something that it will take you uh, 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 some un- uh, 100,000 lifetimes to change. It's something that you can not only change in this lifetime, but you can begin to change tomorrow, today, this minute. And that change, the longer it continues, the more profound will be the experience of change. Uh, we don't need to, although it, it's, it, it's fascinating, and I'm certainly one of those people that absolutely loves to explore intellectually all the different dimensions of, of possibilities, but that, that is an indulgence and an entertainment, because really what it's about is coming to realize these truths directly through your own experience and to apply these truths through rendering the kind of changes in the kind of experience that we have. When you recognize that the reality that you project in this moment is qualitatively the result of the thoughts and intentions uh, and the uh, desires and the aversions, the motivations that you entertain. And when you can clearly see the difference between those that are wholesome and those that are unwholesome, then you can begin to cultivate a very different kind of mental formation. And you, you can begin, and you will very quickly begin to experience the fruit of that. The result of that is that your life will change and your experience of your life will change. So. As my understanding, but maybe, maybe not right, uh, I think the Buddha tell, tell about the emptiness it's not want to tell people that everything is empty. You just want to show people the thing, the truth, and the sight that we didn't see is empty quality. Just like we see a we see a ball, we see a moon, we only see one side. We didn't see the other side. Actually, empty is part is a, one of the quality of the truth. It's the same thing. It's not just say like uh, everything is empty. He just want to show you the point out the truth is uh, the character of the truth. Yes. Because well, this example that you give, this is one of the ways, a very simple way, to begin to to, to point out to to point out to someone and to begin to grasp uh, the significance of emptiness, which is that. You know, as you say, an object, you look at one side of object and you assume that the other side exists, but you have no direct experience of it. That that's, a, that's a projection. And that's a very simple thing that absolutely anybody can begin to explore. It, 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 it's one of those very evident and, and quite obvious aspects of, of emptiness. Uh, and, and so that's... That's an example of how we can come to know emptiness. But what the Buddha was trying to tell us 
is the, has to do with the significance of that. That all of the dissatisfactoriness and the suffering that we experience in our lives has a cause. And that cause resides not in some external world of uh, realities from their own side. That cause is in our mind. And we can discuss it and examine it and uh, and work towards overcoming it in a variety of ways. Recognizing that the cause of suffering is craving is one of those. And recognizing that the cause of suffering is ignorance, which means also the ignorance of the, uh, of, of, uh, the illusion of self and the ignorance uh, that involves projecting reality on all of that which is only appearances. You know. But yes, all of these things are pointing us in the same direction that the answer, the solution to your problem is not out there, it's in here. That's, that's ultimately what the, what the simple form of the message is. And the other is that when we look at life, you know, and life is full of pain. This is what you can be guaranteed of. If you are not struck dead in the next 10 seconds, I absolutely guarantee you, you are going to experience pain, discomfort, dissatisfaction. And that if you stay alive, you're going to experience sickness. And if you stay alive long enough, you're going to experience old age. And no matter whether you whether it happens in the next 10 seconds or not for 100 years, you are going to experience the process of the dissolution of these aggregates that we call death. This is, this is inevitable. But the suffering that is associated with pain, sickness, aging, and death, that is not inevitable. That is not at all inevitable. And this, this is the message. This is the salvation. This is the liberation. Is that that is not inevitable. And the simple way that I like to put it is pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. <laughs> we just need to learn what we need to know so that we can make the choice so that the option's not imposed on us, that we choose it. And of course, when we know how, we'll, we'll, choose, we'll choose happiness and freedom from suffering rather than, than suffering and dissatisfaction. Yes? I now feel affected um, in my experience in life, at mm -hmm. my age now, um, growing up, like you say, you can avoid pain. The pain is going to be there because mm -hmm. you're alive. And it seems like as I became more uh, responsible with my life, you know, buying home and all the things that we have to step on, that we have to do as we grow up. Um, the pain, I mean, the, the problems are there all the time. And then 
And at first I used to worry a lot. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you worry about things when you're growing up because nobody really explains. I grew up pretty much by myself. Mm -hmm. I never had parents like teaching me things or anything. And I have learned that um, problems never stop. I, I, it becomes exhausting when you resolve one problem, here's another little problem. And then you resolve that problem and then you have another problem. There's always another one. So I'm coming to the point <laughs> where I don't worry no more. They seem like they resolve themselves. Like it's already, everything's already written. It seems like you can't avoid it. You just have to. And, and I have had people say to me that, uh, that I, maybe I don't care about things, and it's just not. It's not that. It's just there's no point in worrying about it when mm -hmm. they're just it's going to be there anyway. Mm -hmm. And I, when I decided to not worry so about things, I'm so happy all the time. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I take right. care of the problems, but I'm, I'm happy. You know, mm -hmm. and um, and sometimes what I have learned. It's like, even when I, I talk to these people, you know, when I deal with this, my problems, uh, when you communicate and you decide to not worry about them, they resolve themselves. Mm -hmm. And now I, I kind of I hurt when I see other people worrying about things around yeah. me, my family. And it's so hard to teach your family how to, uh, to, to stop being so in pain mm -hmm. and to be uh, happier. Yes. And with very simple things, mm -hmm. without material things. And that, it, it, for me right now, it's like it, it, all the, my nephews and everything, I'm trying to teach them not how to be so materialistic and not to be so happy with toy or just to be happy with simple things. You know, mm -hmm. just to be happy that they, are, they have everything around them that they, they can appreciate without being uh, materialistic, you know. And since, since I made that decision, I, it's been such a relief. Like you were saying, it's, just, it's a relief. Yes. It is. It's I wake up and I don't know why I'm happy. There's nothing really happening, but I'm happy, <laughs> you know? Um, it's been a very liberating for me. Mm -hmm. So I can't wait till I learn. Uh, this is too complicated for me when I'm here and then take off. I'm lost. But I can sort of understand what, you know, what I know what they're talking about. Yeah. I, I see it in a different way. I can explain it in a different way, but it's, it's very fascinating, you know, for me. I can't wait to get farther in my studies and, and all of this, you know? Right. Yes, and, and, and you're absolutely right. The, you don't really need to get into these complex intellectual interpretations, too. Yeah. You know, the, the ultimate truth is, is, is very, you know, the, 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 the deeper truths are so simple and so obvious that they escape us really easily, you know. Because, uh, you know, in, in, in the, the Buddha's very first and most basic teaching, you know, about suffering, he said, he attributed the cause of suffering to uh, craving. Now, if we recognize what suffering is, you know, we, we say this word suffering, and what usually comes to mind is uh, the extreme form of suffering, the kind of suffering that we feel when somebody we love dies, uh, the kind of suffering that we experience with something that's precious to us is broken or lost, the kind of suffering we experience when... Uh, we have a, uh, uh, a severe injury that causes a lot of pain, or, or so on and so forth. But really the word, the word dukkha, means, it, it, the scope of that is greater. He, the Buddha said it, it means more something like unsatisfactoriness. You know? And if we can use that, if we can understand that having your leg crushed is definitely unsatisfactory, right? Having a migraine headache is definitely unsatisfactory. 
having the person you love die is definitely unsatisfactory. But there's all kinds of other mild forms, of, much milder forms of unsatisfactoriness. And even feeling like life has no particular point and purpose is unsatisfactory. And the fact that uh, you eat uh, uh, mango ice cream and it makes you really happy today and so you decide to do it tomorrow and then you go and you start eating it and this time it doesn't make you happy, that's unsatisfactory. You know, Unsatisfactoriness. This is really... Uh, suffering is just one of the more extreme forms of unsatisfactory, but uh, unsatisfactoriness. But uh, our human existence, what he was pointing out is our human existence is permeated by unsatisfactoriness in all of its different degrees, right? You see that? Right. And then he said, the cause of this unsatisfactoriness is craving. Yeah. But now what is craving? Craving is wanting something that you don't have or wanting to be rid of something that you find unpleasant. Or craving is wanting to hold on to something that you know is fleeting and passing away. These are all craving. Craving for something or craving not to have something that's unpleasant. It's all craving. But when we say craving, what do we mean? We mean we want things to be different than the way they are. In other words, I'm in this present moment and things are this way and I reject them. I don't want them this way. I want them to be different. Which means to be dissatisfied. right? So you see, we've actually gone almost in a circle. We say that Suffering is a form of unsatisfactoriness, and life is permeated by unsatisfactoriness. And the cause of suffering and unsatisfactoriness is being dissatisfied with things that the way that they are. <laughs> you see? It's so simple. It is so simple. And then the end of craving, the end of being compelled to want things to be different than the way they are, is the end of suffering. This is the third, the third truth. And is that not obvious? If we stop fighting against what is, then a huge part of our unhappiness evaporates in the instant. But unfortunately, our minds are very, very deeply conditioned to keep rejecting what is, which is insanity. What is is what is. What will be can be different but what is is what is and to reject what is and to struggle against what is is only to make yourself dissatisfied and ultimately to, to suffer so what you have discovered through your own experience is is an application of that and an ability to let go of certain kinds of of non-acceptance of what is. And the more that you find that you're able to accept things as they are, which doesn't keep us from doing things to make change in the world. It doesn't make us passive, passively 
surrender to just let whatever happens, happens. As a matter of fact, by freeing us from all of this suffering and dissatisfaction and confusion and the dispersion of our energies and, uh, and our understandings in a thousand different ways, it makes us far more capable of creating productive change in the world. But it liberates us from our moment-to-moment experience of dissatisfaction and suffering to stop fighting against what is and to come to that place of acceptance. And another way of that, describing that is to achieve equanimity. Equanimity is a non-reactivity to pleasure and pain equally to everything. And do you know what the, the, the title by which the Buddha referred to himself and by which he was commonly referred to by his followers was Tathagata. Tathagata. Tata gata. Gata means gone to. Tata means uh, or tatata means suchness. Thusness. Thusness. So the Buddha referred to himself as he who has gone to suchness. Thusness. What is. It's really describing a state of being in acceptance with what is which didn't keep him from going out in the world and teaching and having an enormous impact. But he did so in a state that was free from suffering because he had gone to suchness. And I'm glad to hear that you you have discovered uh, that you too can go to suchness and relieve yourself of some of the burden and the suffering of life, and that we all can, and that we can learn to do that to a greater and greater degree. What keeps us from is this arising of craving. It makes us want things to be different than the way they are. And as soon as it does, we experience suffering. And then to escape the suffering, we go and we try to do things. You know, and, and, what we, and, and every time we do that, we further reinforce and strengthen this tendency to always want to change things, to reject things as they are and always want to make things different. So we've strengthened the karma that's at the root of our problem. And then we go and we do these things. And very often the things they, that we do, uh, they take a lot of time, they take a lot of energy. Uh, the results are, in general, mostly rather disappointing in terms of what we have to put in for what we get back. But the other thing about them is very often we commit very regrettable acts, unwholesome acts, that further compound our own uh, 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 karmic burden of, uh, of unwholesome actions and intentions. You know, Far too often we try to satisfy this need for things to be different at the expense of someone or something else. And that's what we're trying to worked our way through. So, I've kept you way past your time to go home to suffer time. But it, I was having a wonderful time. I hope you enjoyed it at least at, at least partly as much as I did. This evening, uh, I'm not completely sure that I'm up to it. So, um, if you could please just 
go ahead as you would without me, and then uh, if I'm feeling like uh, up to it, I will, I will come and join you. But uh, I, I prefer not to make a, a, a commitment. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much. Another wonderful day, and we still have a little bit of time tomorrow together. And so, I'm going to focus somewhat tomorrow on. Uh, on, on encouraging you to uh, achieve a regular practice so that you can guarantee some of the results that you've had a little bit of taste of and heard a lot of words about. And so one of these handouts here is on the preparation for practice. So if you could review that perhaps this evening and then uh, have it available tomorrow when you come. <laughs>